Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We're in Acts 11 today. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. I'd love for you to jump in there with us. We have been walking through this book, and we took two weeks in Acts 10 and 11, and we really wrestled with an important reality in the church. And I've heard from a lot of people the last week was really encouraging because we all wrestle with Uh, the reality that sometimes we look at the church or we look at Christians around us and we kind of squirm and we go, oh, I don't know that that looks like Jesus and I don't know that I want to be associated with that activity. And we wrestle with some of those things. So we spent the last two weeks talking about the importance of uh, allowing the, the core of the gospel message not to be enslaved to the cultural husk around it, but to ultimately be freed from the cultural husk so that the kernel of the gospel can bear fruit in people's lives. And as that gospel goes out from one community to another, sometimes it's going to look a little different because the gospel is going to birth something in that place, and we don't want to restrict it. And we're in this progression as we walk through the book of Acts. You go back to Acts 1, kind of the theme verse for this chapter was, oh, hello. Um, the, Lord, the Lord's going to do something different right now. We're just like... Not sure what's happening, but we're going to trust this. No, uh, but when Jesus gives the, the gospel message back in, uh, or the, the kind of theme for this verse, or this book in Acts 1, he says that uh, we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Sumeria, to the ends of the earth. And so there's this outward progression that's supposed to go. And we've seen that working itself out over the first 11 chapters of this book. And what's happening now is as it's left kind of this Jewish-Israelite area, and begun to move into these other areas of Samaria and now going to a town called Antioch, we begin to see it entering into different cultures. And as it enters into different cultures, they're wrestling with this reality of, do those people who trust the gospel in those places have to begin to look Jewish or not? And last week we saw there was a guy named Cornelius, and Cornelius, who was a Gentile, was saved by, through his faith in Christ. And in that, immediately the Holy Spirit descended and God said, this one is mine and I've accepted him just as he is. He was not forced to change and, and become culturally more like the Jews. And so then they went back and reported in Jerusalem this event that had happened. And they said, well, if God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life just as he did to us, then there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There's no difference that we are all together in one family through faith in Christ alone. And it's a powerful message. And we spent two weeks talking about it because it's such a huge shift in the life of uh, the history of the Bible. When you go from Old Testament to New Testament, this is a crux where everything begins to turn and move in a new direction. But here's what what we're going to see today. Any of you ever experienced the reality that you mentally understand something, but it takes a little while for your head to tell your heart and for your heart to work itself out in the actual work of your life? Um, that's what we begin to see is they, they understood the theory and they went back and reported to Jerusalem and they all gathered and they all agreed and they all said, so I guess they just have to believe in Jesus and that's enough. 
and God's going to give them the spirit and he's gonna cause them to flourish spiritually just like us. And there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And I guess that's enough, right? And they understood intellectually, they understood theologically, they understood theoretically, but now they're gonna have to go to Antioch, to a new city, a city that's full of Gentiles. And they're gonna have to live this out and they're gonna wrestle and they're gonna struggle a little bit with the tension of how does that theory become practice in real life And I think we all understand what that looks like as well, don't we? Now, for some of us, this this lesson may actually help. Uh, Some of us like the theory, but some of us are like, dude, I don't even understand until I start working with my hands, until I do something, until I'm face-to-face and I'm in the mix. I don't really even understand the the thing that that we talked about last week. And, uh, And you really need both. What we see in scriptures is over and over that our beliefs are to be worked out in our behavior, that oftentimes it starts with these are the principles and then it gets lived out in the practices of our life. And so it goes from head to change the desires of our heart and then change the actions of our hands and our attitudes um, are reflected in that. So what we're gonna see today is that when the church is at its best, the gospel is being lived out in individual lives as a new family sharing together in God's grace. When the church is at its best, the gospel's worked out through individuals that come together as a church family. Uh, So let's look and read at uh, the end of Acts 11, and we're gonna start in verse 19. So now all those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now this report came back to the ears of those at the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And he came and he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one of them, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it, by the hand, by the, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So this is the word of the Lord as it continues to work through the book of Acts and tell us the story of the early church. And so here's what we see in this passage is uh, that they are beginning to wrestle with the realities of all the things that they've learned about the gospel and how it freely came to all people and how all people were now one under Christ. And there was no isolation or separation or distinction between Jews and Gentiles and the other categories that they had used to, to live with. And this is a new thing. This is actually the first time in the Bible where we see the gospel message brought to an entirely new group of people who have no background at all in any of the scriptures or anything related to Judaism. Now, if you think back to our study of Acts, we saw uh, the Samaritans, uh, we saw that the gospel engaged the Samaritans, but the Samaritans were really half Jewish. They were, they were looked down upon as dogs and they were considered half-breeds, but they had a lot of association with the Jews and they had access to the Hebrew scriptures. So they weren't entirely new to spiritual things as, as it was related to uh, the, the Old Testament and 
in the faith of the Jews. Uh, we saw an Ethiopian come to faith earlier, and he was definitely an outsider. But, but that Ethiopian had, had gone to Jerusalem, had interactions in Jerusalem, and he actually had his own scroll of the, of the Hebrew scriptures himself. And so he had access to, the, God, to the, the word of God as well. This group, though, is entirely new. Uh, this is a group of people that they've never heard of, of a Messiah. They, they've never heard of the Old Testament scriptures. They had a, no awareness of the, the sacrificial system of Judaism. And think about what this would mean for just a minute. You notice what it says um, here in, in, in the verses. When they, uh, this group of people were scattered because of the persecution, they immediately went to these other towns. It says they were speaking the word to, what's it say? No one except the Jews. Now, it's interesting. Why do you think Luke included that statement in this, this little verse? Well, I think he's, he's, what he's saying is these people were still struggling to live out the things they just learned, the things we heard about in Acts 10 and Acts 11, where they said there's no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. They heard it here, but when they actually got to a town called, named Antioch, what was their first inclination? Well, I'm gonna go find the people that, that, that think like I do. I'm going to go find the people that look like I do. I'm going to go find the people that operate like I do, and I'm going to go hang out with them. And so they went and said, hey, we want to tell you about the Messiah to the, to the people that were Jewish that lived in Antioch. And so probably that, that, that barrio, that area, that town where, the, where those people all lived, they went to the, the Jewish people and they began to share the gospel with them. That's not wrong, right? What was wrong was it says that they, they went and told the word of God to no one except the Jews. They needed to go to the Jews, but it was not meant to be exclusive. That message was for everyone. We just spent two chapters looking at that and understanding that. Now, here's what you see in this city is you've got this entirely different group of people that are, that are very different. This, this, the Hellenists or the Greeks in Antioch are a group of people that had never heard the gospel. And so you think about how the message would have to change if you're going to reach this, this new group of people. Now, if you're going to someone who is Jewish and someone who has the Old Testament, they've heard of the promised Messiah. They've heard of the sacrificial system. They've heard of the way that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promises of the scripture and all the things that were coming down to them. And so if you're gonna go share the gospel with them, you go, hey, let me show you and connect the dots between all these things so you see that Jesus is the real Messiah that all those things pointed to. But you're going to a people now who have never heard any of that. And as you are wrestling with that, you're going to have to come to an entirely different way of presenting the gospel. Antioch was really the third largest city in the kind of the Greco-Roman world behind Alexandria and Rome. It probably had as much as 500, 600,000 residents. It's a very metropolitan place. It's a place where uh, they were considered very morally loose. And so there, there were a lot of Greek gods. They worshiped and, and had temples uh, where they worshiped lots of little G Greek gods, Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, uh, Tyche, Artemis. All these uh, were, were, were deities that the local, uh, local people worshiped there. And so this message of Christianity was going to be incredibly distinctive and countercultural when it tried to break in to this new city. And so this one group goes and says they were speaking to no one but the Jews. But you notice what happens in verse 20. It says, but there were some of them who went to the Hellenists and began to share the good news. Friends, it sometimes takes some boldness, doesn't it, to break through and live out the truth? Sometimes it takes some people that are filled with a little courage that are willing to put themselves out there and say, I'm willing to try to do something new because the God, my God is worth it. 
because the gospel is big enough, I believe, to go and step forward and to do something else. So it was not all of them, but some of them spoke to the Hellenists, telling them about Jesus. And what you see is that they believe their theology deeply enough, enough to try something new and try sharing the gospel with a group of people that seemed incredibly unlikely to receive the message. You understand that from their perspective? that they had seen a group of people that for millennia had been steeped in the scriptures and they understood what it was. And now they're going to a group of people that had never heard anything about a Messiah who was sent to die and be raised again for the forgiveness of sins. And they're gonna try to preach this message. Do you ever look at people in our world and think, man, they seem pretty unlikely to respond to the gospel. They don't seem like the kind of people I think are, are sitting on the edge of their seat going, hey, would you come tell me about Jesus and how I'm gonna go to hell if I don't know him? Like, do you ever, I mean, let's just be honest. Do you ever feel that way? Like, do you ever look around and think, I don't think the people in our city want me to come and share that and we'll hear that message as good news. I don't, I don't think that people are sitting on the edge of their seat going, hey, would you tell me I'm not good enough to save myself and I need someone else to rescue me? That's not a popular message in our world. Um, I think it probably felt that way to them too. And yet there were some of them that said, I'm going to trust the gospel is powerful enough that I'm going to go and share the good news with people that seem on the outside unlikely to respond favorably to it. Friends, first principle we see, and I want to give you seven of these today, is that the church is at its best when it trusts God with big faith. Um, when it trusts the, the truth that God has taught us, when that theology works itself out so that we respond with big faith in terms of the risks and the courage that we live out the gospel. And they trusted the news that the gospel was for everyone, that it wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for everyone. And they said, if that's true, then I should go to the other people and share the gospel with them too. And so they believed it in a real way and stepped out in faith. And you notice what happened. And when, you, when, the, when the gospel moves forward with God's help, that it always bears fruit in the lives of others. Verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? When they let the, the gospel out of its cultural cage and they went and they shared it freely and boldly with some other people and God was with them in the midst of that and he, he, he worked through their message that people got saved and we saw remarkable things happen. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of what is supposed to happen in the life of the church. Um, when it says the, the Lord's hand was with them, the hand of the Lord means the power of God was with them, meaning it was working through them. Uh, isn't it a remarkable thing that God uses people like us and he works through us and allows us to participate in the mission that he's carrying out in the city? That, that's the picture you're meant to get is that these people were being used by God and he powerfully was working through them to bring about a change in an entire city and many people believed. So then in verse 22, what happens? Well, that, that word gets out. So people start responding to the gospel and word gets out. And, and so it travels back to Jerusalem. And uh, what do what the kind of the religious leaders in Jerusalem start to do? See, they're also working through this tension. It's like, wait a minute. You mean the gospel's for those people too? And it sounds like God's bringing more people to Christ out in Antioch. And what, what is that gonna be? And so what is it that they, they begin to, to send, uh, they send Barnabas out to go investigate. Uh, and there's kind of two sides to this. One, in some ways, what they're doing is quality control, right? I mean, they're looking like, man, I hear this new, like, big movement of God's happening out here in this town called Antioch, and there's all these Gentiles that are getting saved. And what they want to know is, are they staying true to the gospel? Is the gospel message true? 
that they're hearing? And is God really at work or is this some kind of other, other show that's going on? And so they want to check in on the authenticity of the work and see, is this just some rogue movement or is it legit? Um, and so there's, there's a little bit of a quality control element, but there's a second element, which is why I think they sent Barnabas, which uh, they're going to go and encourage those people to remain faithful with all their hearts to Christ. And so they want to go and, and send an encourager. Friends, in the church, we need both guardrails and gasoline to, to move the movement. Uh, further advance the movement of the church. We need theological or biblical guardrails to make sure we don't, we don't have a train wreck and go off in a ditch, but keep us on the road to keep us on the right path. But we also need relational and spiritual fuel that empowers us to move forward. And so what you see here is that they wanted to make sure they had guardrails, that they were staying on the right road so that they could really uh, experience flourishing in the life of the, under the gospel but they also wanted him to go breathe life and fuel into that so that they had power that would move forward and advance them down and help them move forward on in, in their spiritual journey. So here, what we see is they send Barnabas out. And it's interesting, verse 23, you notice what Barnabas sees when he gets there. It says, Barnabas sees the grace of God. Can anyone tell me, like, what does the grace of God look like? Salvation. Uh, you know, it's, but it's, it's one of those things that's not tangible, right? Like you can't be like, I can't, like you can't draw me a picture of the grace of God. Like you can't, you can't visibly descri- describe it. What you have to describe is how is it working in someone's life? And what he saw there was the people were being saved, that their lives were being changed, that their commitments and their values were being shifted, that they were beginning to worship the God of the universe. And they began to understand the truth of the gospel in some kind of meaningful way. And so he goes and sees the way in which the gospel is working out in the life of the individuals of the church. And, and watches, in seeing that, you notice the response that he has. It says he was glad. And don't you love that? Like, I love how simple the Bible is sometimes. It's like, and he saw that and he's like, that's awesome. And it made him happy. It made him happy to see the grace of God at work in another group of people and how it was working out. And that's the second thing we need to see is, friends, the church is at its best when, uh, when it lives with glad hearts. Uh, some people in our world, uh, they run around looking for faults in the lives of others. Like they're just running around looking like, I wonder where I could pick on. I wonder if I can say what's wrong. I wonder if I can point out where it's not happening. And it, but, but what we see is Barnabas walked in and he was looking around like, where can I see God at work? Where do I see God doing something? Where do I see God changing a life? Where do I see God working on someone's heart? And it made him happy. He was joyful and he was glad hearted about the work that was going on. Now, the second thing that Barnabas did was uh, in the second half of verse 23, it says he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You could also translate that. He encouraged them to remain loyal to God with all their hearts. And so he comes alongside them to begin and speak words of encouragement to, to, to motivate them to stay on the path in which they are. Um, this word exhorted could be translated encouraged. And that's the third element we see in the church when the church is at its best, that it gives loads of encouragement. Um, do you look around our world and think we're, we've got too much encouragement? You ever look around and be like, ah, I think we're all too glad hearted. I think there's too much encouragement being thrown around. I get on social media, I'm like, what an encouraging place. What uplifting people in our, in our world that we get to be around, right? But no, it's like, there's so much discouragement and, and infighting and bickering and arguing and stuff that I think 
Encouragement by itself is a radically countercultural thing. When you step in the presence of an encouraging person, you're like, oh, that feels different, right? Barnabas, um, it was actually named the son of encouragement. He actually had a different name. His name here is, is because he became such an encouraging person that they just said, that's the son of encouragement right there. Uh, a lot of people are called son of something else, but this is a son of encouragement, right? So a, that's a good title, a good name for him. And so he's trying to help make sure you understand what that's about. Encouragement's not teaching or preaching. It's not evangelism. It's different than those things. It's, it's affirming. It's confirming. It's, it's consoling for those who are down. It's coming alongside and, and, and breathing life in. It's advocating and uh, cheering them up. It's lifting them up and motivating people. Encouragement is, is one of those things that creates motivation and endurance in people. It's, it's especially important for new believers, isn't it? That they're just trying to figure all this stuff out and they needed an encouraging voice that says, let me show you the path and let me encourage you to go that direction. It's important for those who are struggling with their own sin. Sometimes you just feel beat up and you think, man, I don't think I'm ever gonna beat this and you need encouragement to come along and go, dude, stay the course, you can do this. The Lord will help you. It's encouraging for those who are suffering and going through hard times. Because you just think, man, life doesn't seem fair right now. And you need someone to come alongside you and exhort you and encourage you to stay the course and to stay faithful and loyal to God and to persevere in the midst of difficulty. And this is biblical encouragement. It's not just complimenting someone. It's not just, uh, but do you understand how, how much uh, that, that encouragement is going to cut to the, the core of cynicism? Uh, that, that you cannot be cynical in the face of encouragement that it just cuts through it and says, no, that's not the way. Let me show you a better way. It points in a healthy direction. If you've ever had an encouraging coach or teacher or boss or friend, and there are people you always want to be around. I've got some friends that I, every time I leave, I look and go, man, I wish I had more time with that guy. Because every time I walk by, my face feels a little bit, my load feels a little bit lifted and my face looks a little bit higher. Because just because of my presence with this individual. And so this is what, what Barnabas begins to breathe into these people. And what was the result? Verse 24, great many people were added to the Lord. Isn't it amazing that when the gospel is freed to do work in our hearts and in our community, that more people want to be a part and that God bears fruit through that effort. And so when you see this is that Barnabas pours into this local group and uh, what happens is they begin to tell their friends about Jesus. See, because Barnabas wasn't an evangelist. He was an encourager and he was teaching the people. And so you had, you had a, a work that began in Antioch and Barnabas comes there and Barnabas begins to breathe life into it. He throws the fuel of spiritual and relational encouragement upon it. He sets some biblical guardrails and makes sure they stay on the right path. And as they continue to move through this and he's pouring into these new believers, what's happening is these new believers are going and they're telling all their friends about Jesus. And their friends are then beginning to come in and you're seeing more and more people added to their number. Do you see how that works? See, Barnabas wasn't the one going out and bringing all these people in. It was the people of the church that Barnabas was encouraging that was saying, hey, come and meet the one who can tell me, or come and meet this Jesus that's changed my life. And you begin to see this work happens. So the fourth thing that we see when the church is at its best, when it loves people who need God's grace. Because the people they were going to were people that if, we, if you looked at them on the surface, if you just did an objective report, you might say, those people seem unlikely to respond positively to the gospel message. 
These are people that needed God's grace. These are people who were steeped in worshiping of other, worshiping other gods. These were people who were multicultural people who were wealthy and successful, uh, people who had intellectual arguments against the gospel, people who would who have looked down upon Jews. And you're like, you want me to give my life to a Jewish Messiah? I don't think so. Uh, these are people that, uh, that, that likely would not have been, uh, been looking for a message, and yet they brought a message that said, hey, we want to tell you about the one, and the, the, the term they use all through uh, this section of Acts is that, that Christ was the Lord, and, and this was a term that actually was used in that world to speak of the Caesars, that the Caesar was Lord. And what they came and said, no, the Caesar isn't Lord. He actually can't give you eternal life. He can't make you flourish. Jesus is the one Lord over all and so you want to trust him, and he's the one who can actually give you forever life. And so they came and presented this message to people who needed God's grace, and they did. And they responded favorably to it. Um, friends, are we telling our neighbors and friends about the gospel? Or are we kind of get? You ever get the place where you look around at the people around you, and you think, I don't think they'd really want to know. I don't think they would really listen. I don't think they really want to respond. But what we saw is, what we see over and over in the book of Acts is that the, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. And the gospel's big enough for anyone and that God's strength is powerful enough to save anyone. And so we should go and share with everyone in hopes that some would respond faithfully and then trust that the Lord would continue to add to our number. So what we see is Barnabas is encouraging them. They're going out and sharing the gospel and their people are responding. In fact, so much so that Barnabas begins to recognize a new challenge. Uh, what happens in a church when a whole bunch of new people show up who didn't know Jesus, but now know Jesus, but don't really understand the scriptures, don't really understand the way of Jesus, don't really understand the morality of the scriptures and everything that it teaches. What, what happens if, if this room were to double? What, what practical ramifications would it have for us in the life of our church? One, or whole, either, either our small groups would get really big and not be small anymore, or we'd need to add a whole lot of new small groups. Um, if, if, if it's going to be about us discipling and equipping and training all the people that God brings our way, if, if this room doubled overnight, it would require a whole lot more people that are stepping into leadership and beginning to pour into that. And that's ultimately the, what you have here with Barnabas, is he looks around and is like, I can't do all this. And he doesn't know what to do, so he starts to look for help. In fact, it's not just that Barnabas says, I can't meet all the needs, but he says, I may not be the right person to meet all these needs. And so he's going to go and look for another person who can bring about some help. And it's interesting that he, it says in verse, uh, verse 20, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Um, isn't that interesting? He's like, he stops, there's this amazing work that's going on, and Barnabas is like, I need help, I'm going to go find Saul. Um, Saul was living in a place called, uh, called Tarsus, Tar uh, which, is, which was ultimately his hometown. Uh, this is the, um, the, the fifth element that we see of what happens in a church is working at its best, is that it works together as a team. Uh, the, the church ultimately is, is about teamwork, working together. Now, let me just ask you this. If Barnabas wanted to be a celebrity preacher, what would be his best move in this scenario? I mean, he's in Antioch. He's the only guy from Jerusalem that showed up. He's the guy that's sort of been sent there as the leader of the whole thing that everyone knows Barnabas is there. And when Barnabas gets there, what happens? 
lots of people are being added to their number. And so Barnabas could pretty easily go like, oh, dude, like I'm important. I've got a really significant role to play. I've got this, this, this really powerful movement that's taking place and I need to, I need to kind of manage this whole thing and, and I can do that. And it's interesting that in the midst of that, Barnabas says, I'm gonna go get some help. And he leaves and he goes to Tarsus and begins to look for uh, this man named Saul. Now, why was Saul in Tarsus? Do you remember? If you're, maybe, maybe you haven't been here with us, but let's kind of go back and think through the book of Acts. The book of Acts, um, Saul was actually a guy who was a persecutor of the church. He was a Jewish guy who hated Christians, was literally dragging them out of homes and throwing them in prison. And as he was going from one town to another on the road to Damascus, God knocked him off his high horse literally and blinded him and says, you're persecuting me and, he, and, and I want you to turn and you're now gonna become my spokesperson. In fact, what God tells him is, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You're the one that's gonna to go to the Gentiles and carry my good news. But, um, but Saul immediately goes back to Jerusalem. They begin to talk and there's kind of this rally or, or rebellion that takes place there and Saul's life is in danger. And so the apostles go to Saul and say, you need to get out of town for your own safety and they send him away. So Saul goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Tarsus. And I can't say that word today. I don't know why that is. I'm mixing up with Tarshish, which is another Bible word. But um, he goes back to his old hometown. And as he does, um, think about what this would be like for Saul. He had been an important leader in the Jewish movement. He had persecuted the church and been sent and empowered by the church as this powerful man. And then he'd gotten saved and he immediately began preaching the gospel and lots of people responded to his message. And so he's changed teams. He's now preaching the message of Christ. and He's having lots of fruit and lots of response to this. And they go, you need to just go away for a while because it's not safe for you here. He went back to his hometown. He, he took up the job of his family, which was tent makers. And so now he's doing physical labor, um, working at the workbench with his family and carrying out this job. Um, in fact, you scholars call this, in Saul's time, they call this Saul's silent years. Because biblically, we don't know anything about what's going on with Saul during this time. And, and a number of years passes where he's just on his own, working with his family in the midst of this culture. And it's interesting because Saul was, everything we know about Saul, if you read the scriptures, is he was this passionate, energetic, zealous man. He was a man with an incredibly active mind who engaged with poets and politics and philosophy and, uh, and religious ideologies. And um, he, he would go on to carry on the, the mission all the way to Rome and carry on multiple missionary journeys. He would write much of the New Testament. This is a man who is incredibly powerful as a leader and yet he goes through this period of time that we call the silent years. Isn't that interesting? That God sometimes lets us go through some silent years before he brings us back into the limelight of his mission. Now, Saul was uniquely positioned here. And it's interesting that Barnabas is the one who goes and listens, or goes and looks for Saul. But can I just encourage you with this? Um, it feels like a little bit of a rabbit trail, but do you realize that sometimes God is doing, not sometimes, God is always doing 10,000 things that you don't even see. God is always working in ways that you don't even realize. And there may be times that you experience, you feel like you're experiencing the silent years, where you feel like you've been put on the shelf, where you feel like you've been set aside, where you feel like no one sees. But in the background, that God is working all along. 
Um, you know, it's interesting. You can infer a whole lot about what's going on um, in these years. N.T. Wright says, uh, sees this season of, as more of a season of preparation for Saul. It's interesting. He says, we can, we can imagine here that Paul was praying, puzzling things out, pondering. We can infer quite a bit about his pondering. From everything we know of Saul of Tarsus, uh, one uh, on one hand, and Paul, the apostle, on the other, we cannot imagine that in this early period he ever stopped thinking things through, that he ever stopped soaking with reflection in his Jewish-styled prayers, that he, wasn't, that he never stopped focusing on Israel's scriptures, that he never stopped engaging with the culture around him. He was constantly, during these years, searching the scriptures and trying to make sense of the world in which he lived in this message where he, had, he understood the Hebrew scriptures, but he didn't see Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus came and said, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And all of a sudden the lights went off and he began to connect all the breadcrumbs through the Old Testament and said, Jesus is the one. And so now he's reframing his life and he's reformulating, he's building all these things. Do you know what's gonna come out later for Paul? Uh, Paul later in his life is gonna begin to write and we're gonna see him and he's gonna write book after book. He's gonna write Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He's gonna write Thessalonians. He's gonna write Ephesians. He's gonna write Colossians. And all this stuff that worked in him during his silent years, this time when he was praying and he was confused and he's studying and he's wrestling with the scriptures and, he, and he's working through prayers and putting all this into the reality of his heart. What, what he had understood about Jesus was moving down into his heart. And there was gonna be a day where that exploded in his ministry. Um, but during this time, he was still sort of on the shelf in the silent years, working it out. But who remembered Saul? And who called Saul up? It was Barnabas. Friends, Barnabas is one of my favorite guys in the New Testament. And I love this guy because though he always is an encourager. In fact, uh, do you remember when, when Saul first got saved? And he comes back and people are really nervous. They're like, dude, you were throwing us in jail yesterday. Now you want us to like trust you to preach for us. That seems kind of weird. You know who first spoke up for Saul? It was Barnabas. In Jerusalem, when, when Saul first got saved, it was Barnabas that says, no, if God has saved this guy, he's given a true message. We need to support him. He's now a brother of ours. Um, Saul was the one that engaged. Now Saul knows, uh, I mean, Barnabas was the one who engaged him. Now Barnabas knows Saul's been the one that's been sent out. And he's been sort of on the shelf, but I think it's time. I'm going to go get him and I'm going to bring him back and I'm going to turn him loose. And so what we see here is that Barnabas um, comes back and he's the kind of guy that, that believed God wasn't done, done with Saul yet. And so he builds a team and he hands off leadership to Saul and puts him together and, and promotes him and gives him an opportunity to serve as part of a healthy team. And together it says for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great number of people. Uh, that's the sixth principle that, uh, that a church is at its best when it teaches one another gospel truth. Um, that they began to teach the scriptures, to explain it, to unpack it, to show people who Jesus was and the implications of all that meant for their life so that uh, that message went from head to heart and worked out within their day-to-day -day lives. And so they began to teach that message. And so distinctively different was this group of people that you notice what it says? That this was the first time they were called by the name Christians. That here in Antioch, as they began to look different, uh, people began to understand that this group of people is distinct and they began, that, that name Christians was probably a pejorative name. It was probably something they looked down upon them and called them, kind of like uh, Grapes of Wrath when they called Oklahomans Okies. It was probably like that. These are the people that can't stop talking about, about the Christ. They think they've met this Christ, and they begin to do that. 
And the last, one more important event we need to see. Verse 27, you get this kind of strange event where this prophet named Agabus comes and Agabus presents or, or tells, kind of foretells through a prophecy that this famine's gonna come and this famine is gonna wipe out the entire world. And um, so you have this, this idea of there's a gospel need that's there and there's, uh, that's presented to them. And uh, there's more than we can really unpack here as far as all of that goes. But here's the thing we see. What is their immediate response when they hear about a famine that's gonna come to the world? They don't, they don't begin to look out for themselves, do they? Their first response is, how do we serve those who went before us? How do we take care of those around us? Their reaction tells us an awful lot about the way the, the community instinctively thought. And that's the seventh principle we see. When the church is at its best, it gives generously to gospel mission. See, these Jesus followers, their first thought wasn't, because if I hear about famine, the first thing I think is, how full's the pantry? Right? I mean, that's, that'd be where I would go is like, do, do we have a stockpile? Do we need to build a basement? Do we need to, what do I do to make sure I'm not going to go hungry when a famine comes? But their first reaction was, oh, if this is going to be a famine and the people that are, that are poor can't eat, why don't we give to the people who are poor in Jerusalem? From the very beginning, the church had a heart to care for the poor. But here's what's interesting to me is you understand that their generosity here is actually theologically motivated. This isn't just someone tugged in the heartstrings and they got a little message that says, wow, if you feel sad about this, you should give to this. This is actually a theological commitment they made. The Gentiles were giving, they're gonna send money back with Saul and Barnabas, where? Jerusalem. So the message of the gospel went from the Jews in Jerusalem and was carried out to the Gentiles in Antioch. The Antioch, the people in Antioch get saved and they trust the gospel. And their first instinct was, oh, if they're suffering because of the gospel and they're impoverished and they don't have the things they need, then let us give back to those people, to the Jews in Jerusalem. Because what was the message that we looked at all through Acts 10 and Acts 11? What was the theology? What was the theory? There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles that we're all now one family because of Christ and because of his spirit. His spirit's made us all one family. And if we're all one family, then those are my brothers and those are my sisters. And so they're gonna give to people that are in an entirely different geographical region. They're gonna give to people they've never met. They're gonna give to people that look very different than they are. And they're gonna give incredibly generously. And what a testimony to the power of the gospel, right? When you think about that, there's something incredibly powerful when you see believers that are reaching across lines and boundaries in order to be generous to someone else, that just takes an ax to the roots of any skepticism, doesn't it? Because they're not doing this out of any self-motivation. They're doing this out of pure gospel generosity. And so they're giving graciously to others. And you notice what it says about their giving, that everyone, according to his own ability, sent relief to the brothers who are living in poverty. And so it was one of those things that, that everyone pitched in and the entire church pitched in and they took care of one another and they together um, gave witness to the goodness of the gospel through their generosity. So friends, let me just end with this. Um, are you getting a picture of what the church looks like when it's at its best? You kind of get a flavor of what the church ought to be. Anyone want to be a church like that? This is what we're called to be and this is what we're meant to be. And we're meant to take the gospel and allow it to move from our head not just to be theory, but to change our hearts and then to be worked out in our hands so that we live it out in practical day-by-day ways. And what we see is that no one else in the, in the world at that time saw, the, saw uh, people that were creating an entirely different human, humanity. And so the gospel was the same message. It was the same mission, 
but it was taking place over and over in new pla- with new people in new places. And friends, let me just end with this. You have a name. You have a story. You have a place. And you have a mission. And the same mission that they had and the same gospel that changed their hearts is here for you to change your mind, to change your heart, to work through your hands so that we together would work with the hand of the Lord and do good in his city. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it shapes us. I thank you for how eminently practical it is, for the way it's not just theory, but it tells us how to live. Father, I pray that the gospel would overwhelm our minds, would fill our hearts, so that we would live for you in practical ways. Father, we pray it through your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.